Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Washington and much of the nation has been scratching its collective head over the case of Lloyd Austin. The Secretary of Defense was hospitalized with major surgery, followed by complications, and yet the White House didn't know for a couple of weeks? For what might have been going on and what perhaps should have, we welcome Hudson Institute adjunct faculty member and former Defense Department and National Security Council staff member, Ezra Cohen. Mr. Cohen, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for having me. And more than a staff member, you were acting Deputy Secretary of Defense. Acting Under Secretary of Defense for uh, Intelligence. Okay. Well, when the Secretary of Defense is incapacitated, what's supposed to happen here? Uh, well, well, Tom, first of all, I think it goes without saying that uh, you know everybody hopes that uh, Secretary of Defense has a full recovery and that his health improves. It is standard practice within the Department of Defense that if an official Assistant Secretary of Defense or above, uh, which is several levels below the secretary, is out for even one day on vacation, that they sign a uh, letter delegating uh, their authority to their deputy. And this is something that is quite routine, something I personally had to do when I just had to take a day off for personal reasons. And so in the case of the actual secretary, then it is the number two person in the Defense Department that receives that letter? That's right. The order of succession, which is uh, also something that is preset, would go to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. However, if the Deputy Secretary was also unavailable, it would then could go down several levels below that, uh, depending on the circumstance. It's really important for people to understand this is something that is preset, and this is a very regimented process because we need to be prepared as a country to respond to any threats on a moment's notice, which means we have to have several levels of backup plan to make sure that clear military instructions can be given to our forces. And so if Kathleen Hicks, the sec- the Deputy Secretary of Defense, did receive this letter, wouldn't, I mean, I'm just asking as a citizen, wouldn't the first reaction be, well, did anyone tell the White House? Especially because this was major surgery with the secretary under full anesthesia for some period of time. I think there are a few things to unpack here. First of all, it's certainly possible that given the secretary's medical condition, he may not have been able to give prior notice that he was going to be uh, incapacitated. And in that case, it would have passed essentially without that letter being signed, but just through notification from his staff, from the secretary's staff, the deputy secretary's staff. The other issue that I think is very odd is that really anybody, no matter what job you're in, if you're told that you're going to be assuming your boss's responsibility unexpectedly for several days, um, most people would probably ask why. At least what's being said publicly, it doesn't look like that happens. Yeah, it gets stranger the more this uh, kind of peels away. And we should also state too, I think, and I'll I'm asking. This is a national security situation, right? If the Secretary of Defense is indeposed, we have two hot wars going on in the world in which the United States has a hand. And, you know, it's not just those low end conflicts, what I would call low end conflicts that are ongoing now. The department also has to be ready to respond to what I would call high end conflicts from huge nation state actors at any moment. And that ability to respond and that ability for the president to convey clear orders and instructions via the Secretary of Defense to military forces is really at the core of our deterrent ability and our ability to deter our adversaries. And so when that chain is muddled, or even if there's a perception that it's undermined, it could be very inviting to our adversaries. 
And, and, and I think that that's really one of the principal concerns here. We're speaking with Ezra Cohen. He's an adjunct faculty member of the Hudson Institute and a twice-time former acting undersecretary of defense. Let me ask you this. In the Pentagon, that's a beehive of activity there. And if you're the secretary of defense, you've got a large personal staff. There's even someone to hang up your coat in the morning. I've seen major generals have people hang up their coats for them, you know, from the outer office, let alone the secretary. How did this not get out sooner? I mean, there's so many people that were probably scratching their heads that were asking, well, shouldn't we call so-and-so? You're absolutely right about that. And I've seen these reports that the reason the information wasn't properly passed either to the White House uh, or to the deputy secretary is because the chief of staff, and that is the chief of staff of the Secretary of Defense's office, was also ill. You know, this is just very hard to believe for a few reasons, and you pointed them out. I mean, there are, the Secretary of Defense has a security detail. He has, uh, there's an executive secretary who brings in papers to sign. He has several military aides, one of whom is a three-star general officer. There's a deputy chief of staff, and there's an office that's just responsible for patching his telephone calls through. And and, and I could go on and on. And the fact of the matter is that none of them either pass the information to the deputy secretary's office or the deputy secretary's office, nobody there, her chief of staff or her military aide, didn't ask the people in the secretary's office for this four or five-day period. It is extremely hard to believe. Yeah, and it's likely, and you covered intelligence and national security and special forces in your Pentagon career. One wonders if this was known by foreign countries, because they have listening posts everywhere, probably at Walter Reed. It would be speculation to say anything for sure. However, what I'll go back to is our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, are, of course, monitoring our level of readiness and our ability to respond to any sort of attack at a moment's notice, and they're looking for those periods of lapse. If they were monitoring this, I think the concern would be that this could be quite inviting uh, of some sort of attack. And that's very concerning, especially because the White House apparently was not aware of the secretary's conditions for days. And I guess that also raises the question of what is the readiness in terms of the command hierarchy of response. That is to say, if all these people are running around, everyone, lots of people knew that the secretary was incapacitated, including the deputy secretary. No one told anybody. What if China said, well, this is a great time to bomb Taiwan. How could we get an air wing in the air or a ship redirected if they can't even pick up the phone and tell somebody what's going on inside the Pentagon? I think the biggest concern is Pentagon and the Department of Defense regularly exercise and prepare for these sorts of scenarios, you know, to respond preemptively to an enemy uh, planned attack. What's concerning, though, is that if the president were to give those orders, if those orders were to come from the White House, there would be ambiguity about who was in charge. And even that ambiguity, if it only lasted for a few minutes, could be a few minutes that we just don't have. And I think that that's really the point of concern. The other issue, too, that I think needs to be looked at by the DOD inspector general and by Congress is whether or not the torch was actually passed completely and appropriately to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And I think we still don't have clarity on that. Right. And of course, you know, the administration, every administration, every Secretary of Defense, every press secretary, regardless of party, always says we're going to be open and transparent and accountable. These are the words you hear as boilerplate. Who is accountable, do you think, in this situation? And what should happen now? Well, there needs to be a very 
detailed uh, investigation that looks at who was told when the communications that came in and out of the secretary's office, the communications that came in and out of the deputy secretary's office. I believe that that investigation needs to be done by a disinterested third party. I saw that the secretary's chief of staff directed some sort of review yesterday, but of course, that's really not a disinterested third party, and, I, and it's quite uh, unusual that a person that may be implicated in the mistake be the one obstructing the investigation and also setting the parameters of it. So I think this is really something that the DODIG needs to review. And, you know, it's always dangerous to impute motivations on people. If you think charitably, it was just oversight on everybody's part. It's like the uh, child drowning in the swimming pool. If everybody's watching, nobody's watching. And so you have a process situation. Could it be worse than that? My concern is not that there was a intentional malfeasance, but that rather it was complacency. And uh, this can happen. This is a risk of happening at all levels of the military, all levels of the national security apparatus. People can become complacent. And I think given the increasingly dangerous uh, state of the world, we need to be moving in the other direction from complacency. So I think, again, this will all come out quite confident in an independent uh, review. In the meantime, the White House should send the secretary a box of chocolates anyhow. I I hope he recovers. He's had a long, distinguished career. It certainly seems like this was very serious, that he had to get this operation uh, after being diagnosed with cancer. But, you know, we all, I'm sure everybody wishes him uh, well. As do we. Ezra Cohen is adjunct faculty member of the Hudson Institute and two-time former acting undersecretary of defense. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.